Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Excited to have this opportunity to interview Andrew Hahn, a holistic psychotherapist who has specialized in healing trauma for the past 27 years. Andrew will be speaking to us from Waltham, Massachusetts. Andy's doctoral training as a doctor of psychology was very extensive and diverse. A few years after he graduated, Andy became the director of training at a local clinic when he began to have some psychic experiences that were outside the realm of typical Western reality. Following the lead of his intuition, Andy completed two years of intensive holistic study, and this led him to conclude that he could get better results by combining what he had learned during those past two years with his traditional trainings. Andy founded the Life-Centered Therapy Training Institute, through which he has trained people throughout the United States and internationally. His life's work and personal commitment is to help end a person's suffering and indeed to end all suffering. Andy's mission aligns with the mission of Grief and Rebirth podcast, which to encourage people to heal and end their suffering. I'm very much looking forward to a dynamic, impactful conversation with Andy about healing trauma, what people can do to be free of suffering, and so much more. Hi, Andy. Welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Hi, Irene. That was just lovely. And thank you so much for inviting me. And I can't wait for us to have a conversation together. It's just exciting. We're going to help so many people. This is like so wonderful. So let's introduce people to you by having you explain to them what originally inspired you to become a therapist specializing in healing trauma. Um, What inspired me was a moment, I would say. This ultimately did it. This is what set me on this path. And it was a moment of, it was really one of the most pivotal moments in my life. And just simply, I had gone out to visit a friend who had become a devotee of Yogananda in, at, in the Self-Realization Fellowship. And she had left everything behind just to do this. She was actually the head of all NGOs at the UN and just left it. Would you just explain to everyone what's Yogananda for those who don't know? Yogananda is a guru. Um, his name is Paramahansa Yogananda, and he started. He came to the United States and started a group called the Self Realization Fellowship. And the way most of us know about him is a book called The Autobiography of the Yogi, which many of us it's one of the first books we read when we start entering these worlds. So, and I had already read it, but uh, I didn't know it from the inside out. Okay, so that's who he is, and uh, she went to to become a, 
devotee for a while and then she went on with her life but this is when she had gone out to do that so and i for some reason knew i had to see her so she invited me to come out and stay with her for a week and the day before i went out there she fell down and fell badly um and she had done something awful to her ankle because when i got there she was in excruciating pain and her ankle had turned blue and it was doubly it was double the size of an ankle but she hadn't gone to the doctor and she wanted me to go with her to the fellowship so she said i want to take you there anyway so the next day we go there and she's like leaning against me go ahead she's in terrible pain the whole time the whole time but i said okay i mean Roshan knows how to take care of herself. And I said, she knows what she's doing. And I already knew she was an Indian mystic. I just didn't know what all that meant yet. Um, I had an idea anyway. So anyway, so we go to this heart chanting service for an hour and all we're doing is most beautiful chanting together. It was really enchanting. And, um, and then she wants to walk me around the fellowship, the holy grounds of the fellowship, which I would say is as close to heaven on earth as I found in this country. And I highly recommend everyone goes to it. It's in Encinitas, California, and it's just breathtaking and so high vibrational and spiritual. I can cry about it now, and I haven't been there for quite a while. Wow. So we're walking around, and we get to these two benches, and she says, I can't, even with leaning on you, I can't walk another step. I can't do it at all, even like with what little I'm putting pressure on my ankle. Uh, you're going to have to carry me out of here. And so she sits down on one of these benches, they're parallel with each other. And I wanted her to be able to put her leg on my leg so she could have it raised. So I go and I did something, I, I saw where I wanted to sit and I had to go around a whole lot of bushes to get to a little opening to get to where this was. And the second I sit down in this seat in this, on this bench, I am flooded with, the best way I can describe it would be like if you were flooded with like a hundred suns. And I knew it wasn't the sun because I knew where the sun was and I knew where this energy was in the universe and they weren't the same. So I knew it wasn't the sun. I knew it was strange. And I could feel it entering me and coming into the center of my chest and out my hands to her ankle, except it felt more like I was just immersed in it. So I told Roshan to give me her ankle and she put it and she had put it on my leg and I just started, I put my hands, I didn't touch her. I just experienced this energy flowing through my hands to her ankle. And I did that for about five seconds and then I just had a sense we were done. And she In said- five seconds? It was about five or 10 seconds. Wow. And I just had a sense we were done. And then she says to me, you know, I can read auras, don't you? This is 1991 and you and I are both Jewish. I said, I'm a nice Jewish boy from Boston. What do I know from auras? Right. <laughs> She, so she, she says, are you aware that there's light coming through the crown of your head and into the center of your chest and out through your hands to my ankle? And I said, Roshan, I can't see it the way you're talking about, but I know what you're saying is true. And she said, you notice where you sat? It was a very strange place. And I said, yeah, because I had my reason. She said, that's not why you sat there. It's called the seat of the healer. Virtually no one sits in that seat. And that says something about who you are if you just end up sitting there. Wow. And so then we look down and there's no swelling, there's no discoloration. She gets up and she walks out with no pain. At which point, to coin a phrase, I said, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're like someplace else. And um, that was the end of six months of really quite remarkable experiences. And after that experience happened, not that I knew it, 
but I wanted to understand what had happened there and deepen it. So that led me onto this two-year journey that I didn't know was a two-year journey. I just kept going wherever I was led for two years and um, studied about everything you could imagine that was sort of non-traditional. And I did mystery trainings and healing through touch trainings and dark shadow trainings and psychic trainings and psychosynthesis. And I studied the Enneagram very deeply and I did regression trainings. I did all kinds of things. And then at the end of that, um, and I was still a fairly mainstream psychologist while that was going on. So I had these two worlds. And at the end of that, I had an acquaintance and she said, you got to go see this woman. She's doing miracles in New Jersey. Now, not even West Orange. I don't know where this thing took place in New Jersey, but she, and she had been at a workshop in New Jersey. And she said, I don't understand what this woman did, but she told me the story of what happened. And the story of what happened is the woman, the woman who was running the workshop was named Judith. And one of the participants had such a bad case of asthma. She could barely walk up the stairs. This is what my acquaintance told me. She was like, you know, it was so hard for her to breathe. And Judith does a session with her. And during the session, she uses something called muscle testing or kinesiology, which my, I had not heard of in 1991. And um, has this woman tap all over her body, which my acquaintance didn't really understand. And at the end of all that tapping and telling a story, Judith muscle tested and it said that her asthma was cleared. So she told the woman, because Judith has a strong personality to go outside and to walk and to see if she feels different. And the woman starts walking up the street and then she starts to run and she runs up the street and runs back and she's exhilarated and exhausted is what I'm told. And the woman says, um, it's not a surprise because she said, I've not been able to run a step in seven years. Wow. 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 So I said, that's interesting. And it turned out Judith lived 10 miles away from me. So, and Judith had started just training people and um, I found out what she was doing and I was doing things that she had no idea about because Judith had no background in psychology at all and no background particularly in energy. She was a neurobiolo she was a, a neurobiologist and she got interested in brain function and so she learned neuro-linguistic programming and then she found this really right, quite remarkable woman who is a craniosacral therapist. And she learned that person's protocol, a woman named Mary Louise Muller, who was a little angel in the world. And because I met Mary Louise once and she's like really something. I remember the evening still. And then she became Roger Callahan's, one of Roger Callahan's first students. And Roger Callahan was sort of the original person who did tapping. And then Judith did her own original research on loss and violence traumas. And she wrote this paper with no background in psychology whatsoever, saying that there is the same structure every time there's violence and every time there's loss, even though the surface is different, what goes on underneath is the same. It doesn't matter. And if you know all of what goes on, you can transform any loss or violence trauma. And that's what Judith knew. And what I knew was I had studied just about everything you could imagine in psychology. And so I had studied traditional psychology and what's called post-narrative systems and uh, my training, because I got a PsyD, my training was unbelievably diverse when I was a psychologist. And then I'd gone off and I'd done all of these mystery trainings and healing through touch and depth psychology. I studied Jung deeply and I studied the Enneagram and I studied all of this stuff and I was trained and I was already a psychologist, you know, and a professor. And so I was the first person who ever did her training who was uh, who has had a 
had a doctorate in clinical psych. And she and I became partners for a while and worked at White Heat. And we created- What does White Heat mean? It means that within about a year and a half, we created a system that is the foundation for both of our work. And we found, we discovered these universal patterns that when people know about them, they can make healing go dramatically faster. Wow. And we, I can tell you all about that, but we did that together. Um, and we were a very good team because I'm very, very big picture. If you tell me things, I can see like pattern. And Judith is a remarkable small picture person. So you give her any details and she'll like, she'll find detail and build up from the bottom up. And I'm from the top down in terms of this, although all my work is from the bottom up. And uh, so we created the system and we were very different. Judith is medical modely and very interested in cure and fixing. And I'm very non-medical modely and very interested in healing and soul. So our, our worldviews were quite different. And um, our work but together, but together, you had almost all covered. Yeah, almost all covered. So then that was in 1993 to 1996. And then we went each on our own ways. And um, I've been training people in what was called guided self healing until about four years ago, we changed the overall name to life centered therapy. But any trainings we do for the public are still called guided self healing, because we teach you we teach you to how you can self-heal, but we're talking about it's guided by the larger self, which is really guided, guided by life. But we, that's what we call it life-centered therapy because we think life is, has its own consciousness, its own beingness, and our role is to be in alignment with life. And when we are truly free, we can play our roles and nothing will stop us. And that's why we called it that. And um, I love that. Um, <laughs> I, I really love the, your story and how you and how you also guide people to help themselves to heal. Yeah, you don't have them dependent on you like that. You teach them. Well, well it's it, you can teach anybody to do the healing work. The beauty <laughs> of the healing work is I can explain it to a smart ten-year-old in two minutes, and they'll get it, and they can start doing it for themselves. But I've been doing it for twenty-eight years, and I still am learning stuff. Mm -hmm. I had a session the other day where something happened that had never happened before. And I do this for 28 years, 30 hours a week. So I'm still learning. You're That's still learning. You're still having new things come to you. You have an amazing story about um, a special past life story you discovered in Machu Picchu. Can you share that with us? Sure. I was with Roshan again. And Roshan, I asked Roshan and my, uh, the person I worked you know, I, I was, I'm with, we had asked Roshan to lead a trip for us. And Roshan knew Machu Picchu like no one in the world, actually, because Roshan, the first time she went to Machu Picchu, she told us, and Roshan just doesn't, is not hyperbolous. She found all of the senior guides and started telling them what happened there and things they never knew. So she led us there and we started when this experience started we were in we were in Machu Picchu and Machu Picchu has a cave in it that looks like a heart and it literally is the heart of an animal and we're in there and um she found this she knows all of the shamans and guides around there and she had this very very special shaman who was doing this ritual and he had us close our eyes and the second I close my eyes I feel a hand on my shoulder and I thought 
I know the person who was next to me who I love, but was sort of a prankster. And I thought, really? And I looked over, but he was not, he was clearly not prankstering. And I suddenly realized there was a hand on my shoulder, but it wasn't anyone material form. And I closed my eyes and I saw who this person was. And the best way to describe her would be like if you put together a priestess and a goddess. I mean, I could tell what she was and I could see her very vividly. And then what happened is I started to, uh, I could show you the motion, but it was like I was riding. This is this is just audio, right? I won't. This, this is the answer. no. This is this is. You're going to be on YouTube also. I'm going to be on YouTube also. Well, for those of you who can see, I started like going like this, like I'm riding very fast on a horse, which, if you knew me, was a kind of funny idea. And like, but I know. And then I realize. Then I see some things. I mean, the thing that I realize is that I'm in front of a whole phalanx of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and all um, spirit all spirit no this was like I was, it was well it was physical in my mind's eye i'm riding this horse and then i realized like i'm reliving it there are all these people around me but i'm leading all of them oh wow okay sure. and we get to a place and um i can tell what we're doing is we're um we're barricading like a installation. We've surrounded it, and um, you know we're gonna we're gonna let nothing in and let nothing out. And we're gonna because and then I realize and I'm thinking, what am I doing on a horse? Because like this is Machu Picchu. I shouldn't be having a horse. And then the word came to me Spanish, and I realized that we had we had taken some of the horses from the Spanish, and that's how I had a horse because I didn't think they had horses. So. Um, you know, but anyway, we're at this place and then I get this vision in my head of all these men coming up, um, coming up, I have to just do this because- No, go for it, do whichever you need to do. I wanna make it so that you don't hear background noise. Um, I see all these men coming up Machu Picchu in Kachina outfits, meeting me up there, like scores and scores of men. And then we go down and then we start doing this. And I realize, like I said, we're barricading this installation and then um they start telling me they have to go home because you know they can't just stay there they have to go and feed their wives and children and they can't just stay there forever so it starts thinning and then i know what happens is there's spanish and they come out and they capture me and they bring me in to where they are and they torture me and they murder me in a very awful way that's what i knew at the time that's what came to me while i was riding that horse in that vision. So since you want to hear, the next day, Roshan and I were going into Machu Picchu together because she said, we really should do this. And she said, you'll lead the way. So we walk into Machu Picchu. And if you've been there, you know that there's a crossroads where you can go down into where people lived. And I thought we were going to go there because I thought by that time, something was beginning to torque and they were doing I, what I understood to be virgin sacrifices. And I thought a lot of people had died there, but not in ways that were in alignment, which there was a time that that was done because of a ritual and an initiation to be able to stay alive while you were dead and come back immediately. And it was done in a very, very, very spiritual way, but that had started to change. So I thought we were gonna be doing trauma work down there. But we get to this crossroads and I can't go to the right. And she said, we have to go up to the left, right? And she, I said, uh-huh. And I didn't wanna make Roshan do that because Roshan is not very well, but she walks in front of me and we go up to where there are three altars. And she's in front of me and she turns around and I start to see her shape shift into the goddess priestess I'd seen the day before. And she said, 
you know about our past life here? She said, I've never talked to you about our past lives. Do you know about our past life here? And I said, well, I have some idea of it, but I don't know all of it, but I'm beginning to get a better sense even now, but I know what I know, but I don't know all of it. And she said, well, I'm gonna tell you our story, which makes a lot of sense in my life and it was very healing. She said, there were three groups here. There were a group of women who were all from another dimension who came down to this dimension for healing and for um, really healing a whole culture and being able to be with them when they were going to go through something horrific. And then there were the leaders, the men who were warriors leaders. And uh, then there were the people who were there who were like in service. And there were three groups. And her whole group of women had taken a vow of celibacy. If the story is too long, it's a fascinating story. Um, and so we were not supposed to have sex because for a whole variety, which she told me, but she fell in love because she was human for the like not very long and she didn't know what it was like being human. So she and the head of the men fell in love and of course consummated their love. And she not only had sex, she got pregnant, which of course was gonna be a nightmare because her whole agreement was that she would remain celibate so that she would remain pure and non-attached. And then she had to say, well, what am I gonna do now? And she had the power to mask her pregnancy, but she, she, there was a, she couldn't end her pregnancy. So a child was born and she said, you were that child and I was your mother. Wow. Yeah, that was a wow. Um, and she said, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't own my maternity. So I had to watch you. Now I then started to tell her, I know what the story is. I was told stories about my mother not being there, like going off someplace and uh, leaving me. And no one would ever tell me the real story of it. And I got, my father raised me and I got to be a young man and it was time to have a change of power. And I was livid about the fact that I had been abandoned and no one was gonna tell me and I didn't know my story. So when, when that power change started to happen, I got into cahoots with the Spanish and I started to do sacred mystical Christian rituals up on, on one of the altars in Machu Picchu, which of course is sacrilege to say because to have Christians doing rituals in Machu Picchu is an anathema. Um, but I said, I was starting to do that because I had made this, I had come into agreement with the Spanish and I became Christian and I tried to convert people. And she watched me going down this path and said, she couldn't do anything about it because she couldn't own her maternity, but she watched me going off the path and going down this other path, not because it was true for me, but because I was grudged. And it's not that there weren't wonderful things that could happen with those rituals, but they weren't done from a pure place. Well, eventually what happened was um, I came to realize that the Spanish were using me, at which point I went back to the other path and said, we have to protect ourselves from the Spanish. And the only way we can do that is to make sure that they can't get here by blockading them. And so I was the leader of this group at that point and I went and we blockaded them and then we picked up the rest of the story. That's the story. So that's what I learned. And it had a lot of meaning in my life, which I could tell you, except we don't have enough time. But, but hey, listen, when you come back the next time, maybe we'll, we'll revisit. I will, I will tell you what's really amazing. We'll give everybody a coming attractions. Okay, let me tell you what's amazing though. So I go and tell our guide this, who is probably the most renowned guide in Machu Picchu. And I tell him the whole story and he says, you know, 
do you know what story you're telling? And I said, I have no idea. I have no idea of the history of this place. She said, you're telling the story of Tupac Amaru, who's called the Lost Incan. And you're telling everything historically that's known about him exactly the way it was known about him. And then I told him about the rituals that I was doing that were Christian rituals. And he turned like white and he said, I'm going to tell you something that no one else knows because I'm going to write it in a book, but I'm very scared to write it, which is about four years ago, I brought a group of Christian mystics who are bishops and cardinals to Machu Picchu. And I was describing to them how there were three altars, one for the women, one for the men, and one for the people who were sort of supporting them. And one of the uh, cardinals said, no, you're wrong. And he pointed to one of them and he said, that wasn't for the people. That was just a lie that was told. Christian rituals were being done on that altar. And that was the altar I pointed at where I said I was doing Christian rituals. Wow. He turned white as a sheet. He said, I'm going to write this in a book, but like, I'm kind of worried that when I do, because it's so, um, it would be such a sacrilege to say this when, you know, we want to honor the Incan people to say that there were Christian rituals going on at the top of the biggest altar in Machu Picchu. So, uh, but that story. That's your story though. It's my story. You've brought us a first on Grief and Rebirth podcast because we've, i I've talked to people about past lives and we've talked about the concept of it and we've mentioned a few, but we've never had one in such detail. And this is wonderful. I'm so glad for people to hear this. And, and when, when we teach people how to find their own quote unquote past lives, if they believe in past lives, and if they don't, we'll just say, you know, it's an undreamed dream or your personal mythology or just your imagination. But if you have had many, many symptoms that you've been working on forever and you haven't found the root in the other lifetime, you can get results that you would call miraculous if you find the right other lifetime and transform it. I could tell you story after story. I could tell you one for sure. And, you know, if you yeah, we're gonna, I want to hear some of your stories. So, so when people go to the Life Centered Therapy Institute, they, if they want to, they can also uh, dive into learning about their past lives, I would think. They almost always learn about their past lives um, karmically or genealogically, because we find out where the root is. We find out what your real intention is, which sometimes is what you think it is, but sometimes the things you come in with are really symptoms of something deeper. And if there's symptoms of something deeper, like betrayal, or you can't let go or neglect, I can find the theme and I can find out where it originates. And if it says it originates in your lifetime, we'll go to someplace in your lifetime. But if it says it originates in another lifetime, I say to people, what's your belief about other lifetimes? And if they say, I'm open to it, I say, great. And if they say, they never mentioned it. I don't because I don't care what they believe about it. And um, but people who've worked in this lifetime forever and not gotten the results they want will often get results that look biblical within a half hour in one session because That's they never, never occurred to them. So everything in this lifetime actually was an echo of a replaying of something that was a bleed through from another lifetime that their soul was helping this person try to remember. But of course, we don't know that. We just think it stinks. That's Fabulous for our, for our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience to know about. It's wonderful. Yeah. Tell us some of your amazing stories about clients, different ways. Like, give us one or two or three about people who have healed through your Life-Centered Therapy Institute. All right. I'll turn us you, on. Turn us on, Andy. All right, I'll turn you on. You, I, was at, I was at a conference, and I was doing a breakout session in front of about 100 people in an amphitheater. And I asked for volunteers to do a session. This woman I, gets picked in a way, it doesn't matter, but she gets picked and she comes up and she says, 
I have tried everything. She says, I have this major depression and nothing is touching it. I've tried medication. I've tried cognitive behavioral therapy. I've tried energy psychology. I've tried everything. She said, I feel weighed down. I feel helpless. I feel hopeless. I can't move. And I'm just totally stuck and I'm scared. And I, so I muscle test and I say, are we to work on that depression? Is that the most important thing to work on? And it says, no. So I say, okay, it says, that's not the most important thing. And then she starts to hyperventilate in front of all of these people. And she starts having a panic attack. And she says, I know this is crazy. And I've tried cognitive behavioral therapy for this too. And many other things. And I take meds for it. And she actually spoke in front of people. She had to take major meds to do it. She said, I know these people are going to kill me. And people have told me it's a crazy thought, but I know they're going to, and it makes me crazy. And I muscle test and I say, is that it? And it says, no. So she says, well, I don't know what it is. So I say, is that true that you don't know what your highest intention is? And it says, yes. So I find it in our, in our framework and it's a pattern we call a death wish. And a death wish just means that there's a part of you that wants to die. And I found out where it originated and it originated in a karmic past life, which she was open to. So a part wanting to die can be two things. It can mean something so bad happened that you wished you were dead, or it can mean you had such a traumatic death that you dissociated before you died, at which point you get stuck outside your body. Because of course, if you don't want to experience that physical or emotional, spiritual pain of dying, you'll leave just like anybody will under those circumstances, you leave the body before you're dead. And if they kill them, the body, you're kind of stuck. And so I said, I had her say out loud, a part of me wants to die. And when I did the muscle testing, if people know muscle testing, I press on an arm and if it stays strong, it means yes. And it stayed like steel. And she couldn't keep her arm up when I said, no part of me wants to die. And I asked, does that resonate with you? No part wants to die. And she said, it makes no rational sense, but it does resonate with me, even though it doesn't really make sense. So I said, when you really allow who's ever here who's saying, I wanna die, I just want you to scan your body and see what you notice. And she starts scanning her body and she says, I'm having extreme pain in my neck. So I said to her, well, it's not you that doesn't wanna die. It's a person whose name is extreme pain in neck. It's not your extreme pain in neck. Its name is extreme pain in neck, just like your name is Sylvia. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna bring all your attention to extreme pain in neck to such a degree that you're gonna become it from the inside out. It's like an actor who's choosing to become a role and fully enrolls themselves. And then I say, one of three things will happen. I didn't explain all of this. Either you'll start living it out like you literally are an actor in a play or you'll see images like you're watching a movie or you'll just know what's happening like you're reading a novel. And really what we're gonna have happen here is I'm gonna talk directly to pain and neck. And I say, pain and neck, where are you beginning? What's happening? And what have you come to share about this wanting to die? And then for people who can see, I will show you what happens. She starts violently wrenching her neck like this over and over and over again. And she says, oh my God, there's a guillotine coming down on my, there's a guillotine coming down on me and they put me face up. So they must have really, she tells us this later, she's screaming. She says, there's a guillotine coming. And she says, I'm, she says, she starts screaming. I can't move. I'm weighed down. I can't move. The only thing she could move. So I'm weighed down. I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. I can't move is literal. People are always literally telling the story. They are not, it's not metaphor, right? And she says, I'm in front of this whole crowd of people and they're throwing, it's clearly the French Revolution. They're throwing things at me and they're cursing me and I'm vowing I will never be in front of a group of people again, never. And she's screaming all of this. And then she says like, 
God, I was a good Christian woman. Why did you forsake me? And she's gone to all of these spiritual conferences. She says, I can never feel the presence of God. She said, I will never believe in you again. She's screaming all this stuff. And she didn't tell us that she had awful chronic neck pain, which she attributed. Oh my goodness. Right? Awful. Well, the accident was trying to get away from something. Literally, she was trying to get away from something and she terribly hurt her neck. That was her story about the accident. So there are no accidents. There's only, there are, our, our soul is creating things for us that look like accidents, but they're really an invitation to remember. So she's screaming all this stuff, you know, and then she says, I must have died. So I said, well, now we know what your problem is. You didn't know you had died. And there's only one reason that could be, which is part of you left. And the part that left said, I must have died because you would have known you would die, but you never would have experienced dying because you weren't in the body. And so you're living out the end of that woman's story. And all we're going to do is we're going to take care of her. And the way we're going to do that is now that we know what happened and she knows what's happened, we're just going to invite her to come back into the body fully right before she dies. And then you're going to, as her, you're going to fully die this time with awareness. And then when you're dying, you are you're going to go out the crown of your head, but this time by choice, not by fear. And then she says something funny. You know what she says? What she says, one. The one that's rolling down the hill or the energetic one that's still on the top of my head. She actually said that. And she said, I know which one. It's the one on the top of my head. So um, she goes out of the crown of her head and she looks up. She says, I see this light. And she said, I'm going to the light. She did this on her own. And uh, she says, like, I'm being, like, taken into the light. And then she has this beautific smile on her face. And she says, I'm done. That took about 30 minutes. Okay, now I'm going to tell you what happened. So she's in front of this whole crowd of people in an amphitheater and they start asking her questions and she starts turning her neck from side to side like this. This is impossible because I can't turn my neck like that. And if I did, I would be screaming in pain, but I don't have any pain. And then she says, like a little bit later, she says, I should be thinking you guys are going to kill me and that you hate me but I don't believe it anymore. I'm having the best time with you and I have no medication. I have no nothing and I'm having the best time with you. And then she says, I don't feel weighed down and helpless and hopeless and like scared. I feel a sense of lightness and I can even feel divine presence. Wow. That was a while. And she wow, came what back. what a fabulous story. Well, I'll tell you what's even more fabulous about it. I saw her at the same conference next year and she searched me out and she said, almost all of it held. It didn't all hold. And I said to her, probably because there are other layers, because there are other things that can go into your depression or your fear of crowds or whatever, because it's like an archaeological dig. But she said, basically, it's all held. And that was 30 minutes. Fantastic. I have a lot of stories like that. I have stories that are even more wild than that. If you well, you know what? Chronicle them, because the next time you come back, we'll, we'll have you tell a few more. That's amazing. Andy, what is the difference between healing and cure? Healing is about freedom. Cure is about symptoms not being there anymore. And sometimes when you do healing, you get cure, but it's not the point. The point is to be free. Because like, let's look at it this way. Let's say you're dying, right? But you have no anxiety anymore. And you're not saying, why hast thou forsaken me? But you can give yourself over with courage and grace, right? And... uh, you're not judgmental and you're not comparative. Why is this happening to me and nobody else? But you just say, 
no, I'm dying. I mean, I'm sad about it, but I'm dying. Then you don't have a problem even if you die. So what I'd say is what we're looking for is freedom. And freedom just says that you can take whatever comes and say yes to it. And that you know that on some level, whatever's happening, if you can be non-reactive and just say, I can be with whatever's here, you're free. And then if life wants you to quote unquote be cured, you'll be cured. And if life, it's not in life's interest for you to be cured, you may not be cured, but you won't care because you'll know you're in alignment and you're doing your part of life and you'll be, you'll be able to have a much grander perspective because it's like who we are as cells, you know, where it's a mystical concept. We're like cells in the body of life. And so each of us has our own role to play, like you say, I have my mission, but each of us knows everything, just like cells. You can take one cell and it has the whole template of everything that has ever happened is happening and potentially can happen. That's how we can clone Dolly, the sheep, right? One cell, all the information. And when you touch into the template, you don't worry about anything anymore. There's no anxiety because you touch into a bigger picture. And if you can do that all the time, they call you Christ or Buddha or Kuan Yin. And then you can touch the template and there's no more anything. And so that's healing. Cure is symptoms go away. But okay. I'm so let me ask you a question. When you talk about healing, so are you talking about mostly healing about being um, acceptance and letting go? Yes, that's entirely it. And even though it's even you can know how to do it, which is that whenever there's something that can't be handled, what is acceptance and letting go? People their problem is because they can't handle something, they identify with the one who is traumatized. Like if you have a panic attack when a car backfires and like 10 years ago, you're in Afghanistan, right? And a bomb goes off, right? And you can't handle it. So you're no longer the one who's having an experience. You are identified with the experience, right? But if I can say to you when the motorcycle backfires and you're you know, having a panic attack and jumping on my four, what are you feeling in the body? And you say, oh, my heart's pounding. Then I'd say, well, it's not you. Nothing's happening to you right now, but something's happening to heart pounding. And we can find out where that began. And if you choose to become heart pounding, then you have become, you have accepted You've been able to face and master what you couldn't face and master before. And then you're free because then you've chosen to be it while you identify with the one who's doing the choosing and identifying with the witness who's holding and hosting the person who's there having bombs go off. You're no longer identified with it. And the next time that a motorcycle backfires, you'll say, oh, this reminds me of a terrible thing, but it's not who I am. It's just an experience I had. You're and neutralizing the triggers. You're neutralizing the triggers. I'm neutralizing the triggers by having the person re-experience it, but by choice. There's no regression, so there can be no re-traumatization. Right. I can bring people into the worst horrendous trauma in the first minute of therapy because we're not regressing them to age two where there's a ritual abuse. We're saying that two-year-old is here right now because she couldn't handle the fact that she was watching murders and make, being forced to do things. She's here. All you have to do is find her. And the way you'll find her is a sensation because when she was doing that stuff that she couldn't handle, in that moment, a sensation was born. And that sensation is just like you, just like Irene was born in a moment, it was born in a moment. It has its own life. And all we have to do is say, I'm gonna choose to become you as opposed to identify with you. And it's that simple. And if all you did was that, every time you had a discomfort before you did anything else, you said like, what have you come to share with me, headache? And every time there's something that you have any reaction to before you do anything else, you find the sensation in the body and you find it and say, 
What have you come to share about whatever it is you're anxious about? Where is it beginning? What's happening? Watch what happens. You'll have better therapy than you will with virtually any therapy. So therapists will have you talk about it, which is called trickle down economics. Why not just start with the person who really has the problem, whose name is sick to stomach or headache or whatever its name is. So that's why you believe that true healing requires a holistic approach, a mind, body, spirit approach, as opposed to the traditional healing. It's all mind, body, and spirit are all one. It's just much more powerful to do it through the body because the body holds everything. The body has a record of everything. And you get, you get visual, auditory, and kinesthetic when you become the sensation because you become the other being. So whichever way is right, you'll, I mean, you might see it, you might relive it. You know, some people say, I want pictures. I say, I want pictures too, but I'm visual third. I mean, I just know what happens because I'm, you know, sort of auditory and kinesthetic. So I know what happens and I live it, but I don't see pictures. When I see pictures, I say, oh my gosh, this is a, but yeah, it's all holistic. And it's like saying, and really what it is holistically is to say, it's not even about me. It's about life revealing itself to me, through me, but it's really about something much bigger than just me. Because why are we doing it? It's to be free to be who we are. And in order to be free to be who we are, the first thing we have to do is to say, how do I, if, if I was gonna put it simply, how do I heal all the karma? And karma simply is just something that couldn't be handled. And as you're healing all that karma and you're becoming free to be who you are, you're evolving. Of course, it's all about evolving. All about evolving. And it, you get to evolve because you don't get in the way. You can say yes to whatever is there, including the changes that will naturally happen if you don't try to force anything to happen. They will just happen. All you have to do is pay attention. Your work is to pay attention, not to do anything else. That's called free will. Do you pay attention or don't you? That's yes. it. Yes. You say that struggles come in many flavors and some are harder to overcome. So tell us a little bit about that. And how do you help a person, you call it mapping out the cause of his or her trauma? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what's harder and what's easier, okay? What's easier is things like what I just described to you. If people have symptoms like chronic pain that no one can touch, that's gonna to be about life experience almost invariably. And all you have to do is find the thing that they were remembering and have them remember it. And then the sensation isn't there so anymore. Wait a minute, if somebody is walking around saying, I've got spinal stenosis, are you saying that that's from an experience, not an actual physical, or it's a symptom? How would you explain that? How I would explain it is I think everything is energetic and everything is narrative and energy then plays out in DNA, which then plays out in what we call genetic problems or whatever else it is. Do I think all of them ultimately are narrative? I do. I think everything that is in the body is a reflection of an energy field that's been through things and has its own dense energy that plays out in a way that will be the most useful way for you to remember what it is you're trying to remember in order to heal and evolve. But you have to realize what that means. I don't know if you can then heal it because some energy is very, very, very in the material world. And to change it, you might need someone like a Christ around who can say, I can be, I can raise this, I can open to such a vibration that I can bring the densest energy to that vibration. And then of course, people who are dead come alive again, right? Which is, I guess, harder to do than spinal stenosis. But if you're saying, can I cure spinal stenosis? Absolutely not. I make nobody guarantees. Even if 
theoretically we could, all I say is I guarantee you one of two things. If you stick around long enough, either the symptom will go away, whatever it is, or your relationship to it will change to such a degree that you will have no reactivity anymore, at which point all you have is pain, but you don't have pain about the pain, and then you'll just live your life. That's interesting. So um, how do you help a person map out the course of his or her trauma? Well, I use muscle testing and we, we, like you'll come in with something, right? Like that woman did. But let's suppose you come in with something else, like I'm a nobody and I've always felt like I was a nobody. I would say that a different possibility about that is that it's not a trauma that's in life, it's a trauma that's in soul, by which I mean, as soon as we become separate, right? In the beginning, you could say who we are is everything, right? That's who we are. And we're boundless, dimensionless, infinitely expanding everything. We're all powerful, right? And we're all knowing, but we can't exactly be all loving in the same way that if you are you and you haven't had children, right? You can know love, but you can't know what it's like to love a child because you've never had the experience because you haven't had the relationship. Right. So if you want to have a relationship, you have to create something and then have them forget what they are. That's basically what I think our story is in a nutshell. We're made in God's image, you could say, but God creates us, sustains us, destroys us, but also mystifies us. And the mystery is we forget who we truly are. So from our point of view, if we become, who we truly are is souls. No, who we truly are is everything. Soul is an aspect of the everything. Soul is like a drop, a raindrop in an ocean. As soon as the raindrop knows it's the ocean, then- So you're talking about universal consciousness. Yes, and what I'd say is, from the point of view of us as limited beings, universal consciousness means we will cease to exist. And we call that, it's a, it's a trauma. It's called the existential anxiety of non-existence. And then we spend an awful lot of time trying not to be who we are, which is life, because we're afraid that we will cease to exist, right? But if we could, now, then what happens, the way we protect ourselves is we, we identify with an I. So if I'm an I, then I don't have to worry about non-existence, except there's one problem, which is I am this I in the context of a trauma. So I'm gonna experience myself as being something that I would call negative. And that protects me from non-existence, but it creates its own problem. So let's say I say I'm, a, I'm ordinary and defective, all right? Well, that's protected me from non-existence, but it's like out of the frying pan into the fire because even though it's protected me from something, so it's serving me, it becomes its own problem. So then I have to create a personality, which will be around some the way not to experience this thing I'm most afraid to experience about myself, which is I'm ordinary and therefore defective, which if you knew me, you'd say I'd rather be dead than being ordinary and defective. So, but what happens, you know, so I then have to compulsively be special, right? And compulsively get approval and compulsively connect. But I never really get to be special. I never really get to connect. I never really get to be who I am because I'm being these things in order not to experience a fear. Now, let's suppose I could experience that fear for one second and I could say, okay, I'm ordinary and defective. Then I'd be free. And I'd find out that the thing that was my worst nightmare, which was a black hole that was gonna suck me into it was really love because what's gravitational pull? It's like love and it's inviting us to be 
who we truly are, which is everything, which is to enter the black hole, but we've called it by the wrong name. And we spend all our lives trying to get away from it. Now that trauma is harder to resolve than one where you've had a trauma in life experience, because it's like climbing a mountain. You keep going and going and going, and it gets harder and harder and harder because life will give you more and more challenges about the things that are your deepest fears about yourself that have nothing to do with life experience. They are the lens through which you experience life. And so if I'm a, if you know the Enneagram, if I'm someone who's a self-forgetter and I say, I respond, therefore I am. For me to say, I'm gonna stop being responsible and do what I want is like pulling out fingernails. That's not true for me because I'm a heart point, I'm not a belly point. So for me, it's about craving. And for me, the problem is discernment because of course I have no head. And so I tell myself a story I feel therefore I am because I'm a heart point, but why do I have to elevate feeling over being? Because I don't wanna to have to deal with my fear that there's no head there, this is a black hole. And so of course, be discerning. And those that, that's like climbing a mountain. Whereas my, the, my partner in this says, she says, it's like climbing a mountain and you keep going because you have to go to deeper and deeper layers of those fears until you finally touch this fear called non-existence. And can you sit with that fear? And if you can, going up that mountain is really hard because you get less oxygen, you're more tired, you have less supplies, it gets steeper and you can't see the summit but you know it's there. And the only way you know is you take a break and you say, oh my God, look how far I've come. So those are different kinds of problems. They're existential as opposed to material. Right, so, so but Andy, tell me why it's so difficult for people to give up their painful stories. They're suffering and they don't want to give them up. They don't want to do what they need to do to heal. They don't want to- I don't believe that. No? No, I believe they don't know how to do it because they don't know. I don't wanna give it up could be a story. Let's suppose I don't wanna give it up and I have you in there and you say, I don't wanna give it up. I have to hold on to it, let's suppose. All right. But isn't that, some, isn't that often a person's identity when they hold on to their trauma and it's their suffering? No, it's their pseudo identity. It's not their identity. It's not who they really are. It's a story. Let's suppose five lifetimes ago, you had a baby and someone was taking your baby and you say, I don't wanna give it up. I can't give it up and they take it away from you. And you come and say, I have to hold on to everything I can hold on to. But it's not you saying it. It's somebody five lifetimes ago who's having their baby taken away. So I don't think there's any such thing as resistance. I think there's only remembering. It's therapists who think that people don't wanna give up their suffering. And so they say they're resisting. They don't wanna give it up, but they're, in my experience, wrong, because they don't have the technology to know what to do with someone who comes in and seems to be resisting because there is no such thing as resisting. There's only remembering and you can't step outside the process. If you come into my room and say, I don't wanna do this. You think you're Irene in 2021, but you're not. You're somebody in a story that's being forced to kill someone and they don't wanna do it. And then you're just playing it out and you think it's who you are, but it isn't who you are, it's just an experience experience you're having. And I would treat every experience the same way. That's why I say there is no such thing as resistance. There is no such thing as pathology. There's only stories we don't know yet because we haven't found them and don't know what to do with them. There is no such thing as regression because it's all happening right now. All you have to do is be willing to go on that journey. And everyone I know who I've ever found is because they have tried so hard, but no one knows how to help them do it. And that's why I'm here because like, it makes me crazy that they go to therapists and therapists say, you're unworkable. And I would say, no therapist, you just don't know how to do the work. 
I mean, I'm. So, I don't want okay, to so someone, so someone's had a really hard time finding people to help them, whatever their problem is, whatever. They hear this podcast, and they go, "Whoa, maybe this guy's got some help. He he could help me." And they live far away. Tell us about your online healing services and the benefits of healing through your how how all that works through the life centered healing therapy. If someone is listening here and they're thinking, hmm, maybe I can try this, but how do I do this from online or whatever? It's simple because I use muscle testing. You don't have to be sitting in the room with me. All you have to do is say, I ask you one question. If you could have anything you desire, even if you didn't think it was possible, what would you intend to get from the time? So you're not settling, you get exactly what you want. That's all I ask you. You're gonna tell me and I'm gonna write down everything you say. Then I'm gonna start muscle testing. And what I'm going to do, from a distance, you could yeah. do this while they're while they're in their home on the yeah, on Zoom with how. you. I'm going to tell you how. Okay, if your audience doesn't know muscle testing, I have to explain that. But it's just simply a way that you can find your deepest intuitive knowing. It's the same kind of knowing you would have if Irene, you had a child, right? Oh, you had a car accident. Let's suppose a, a car rolled over your child right. and it was a 2000 pound car and you go and pick up the car and you weigh whatever you weigh. And someone asks you, how could you do it? And you don't say, I figured it out. You don't say I had an emotion about it. You just say, I just knew. And when you're in alignment with, I just know you become very strong. And so what I'd say is that knowing is always there. And we just ask your body to be a means of communication for it, whenever I ask a question, if I pressed on your arm, if it stayed strong, that would mean the answer is yes. And if it relaxes, that would mean the answer is no. So then the question is, how come? How can I do that when you're not in my office? And I'm gonna tell you how. All you have to do is remember cells and bodies, right? And we said, the surface of every cell is different, but underneath it, every cell is a hologram. It has all of the information in the whole universe. And just in the same way that I say, Irene, when you have a problem, there's a dense energy bring all your attention to it, so much so that you're, go you're gonna become sick to stomach. Now, all I do is I do the same thing. Irene is a dense energy because believe me, if Irene wasn't a dense energy, you wouldn't be calling me up for therapy. So you could say, Irene is a dense energy in the body of life. And all I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, because I'm not traumatized right now, I'm gonna go into the template and find the dense energy I call Irene, and then I'm bringing my, all my attention to it and I'm gonna become that energy, just like you would become sick to stomach from the inside out. I'm gonna become Irene from the inside out. And then if I muscle tested, if you see it, and I said, my name is Andy, it would say no. If I said, my name is Irene, it will say yes. It's because I am now so focused on you and the same, we have the same life force. It just happens to be different on the surface. So of course I could then muscle test you and it's all simultaneous, right? It's not that the information travels. So you could be a hundred million light years away. And if we could communicate with each other, which would be a different subject, but I could muscle test you and we get the information simultaneously because it's all happening at the same time. The information doesn't have to travel. It's all non-local because there is no locality. Wow. So that's, and that's how I train people to muscle test. And then they can stand in for anybody because they are everybody. Who okay, I am so, is everybody, and everybody's who I am. I just focus. So now you're helping people individually online through Zoom doing this. What do you do with couples? How do you help couples? First, uh, that's a the, the quick question is um, there's a lot to say about that, but I'll tell you a few things. The worst thing for couples is mutual grudges. Mutual grudges destroy couples, and a mutual grudge is when they feel like um, they keep score. They keep score. 
and they think that the reason they're keeping score is their partner, but it has nothing to do with their partner. So let's suppose, uh, so one way I do it is I, I work on each of their grudges and how they interlock and then I have them heal each other. And I'll tell you what I mean in a oh, second. Oh, that's so cool. It is unbelievably cool. I really think that's cool. It's not only is it cool, it's unbelievably effective. The wow. other way I do it is I use the Enneagram because the Enneagram, um, I can help people understand themselves and their partner from the inside out. Because if you know the Enneagram really well, which I do, it's like, if I know your point and I know your partner's point, I can tell you about your relationship and I can tell you what draws you to each other, what the challenges are. I could tell you everything. And you'd say, are you in our house? Because you're telling us things that we couldn't even articulate. And it's just because the framework is so powerful. And so I can then help people understand each other also. Um, and I can then help them be free of their compulsions by finding their core fears. But I'll give you a quick example of the mutual grudge. Okay, very fast. Yeah, that's I, cool. Go ahead. I, well, if you want to hear both sides of it, it's really amazing because they, they line up so well. And this story is actually in our book. Um, a man came in, a man and wife came in because um, he had slugged her. Um, and they were both in shock because that wasn't like him. And so I'll tell you about that. We did a little work on what would happen. So it would never happen again around safety. But then we, it said we always to work on a mutual grudge. So I asked her first and I'll tell the story, not the way it exactly happens because it's a little bit more interesting. This I'll tell it this way. So I asked her first, what's going on? And she says, what would you pick any scene you like? Well, they both pick the same scene. That doesn't always happen. They can pick any scene they want, but just tell me about a time it doesn't work. So she tells me about this time it doesn't work. And she explains it. She says, look, I went there and um, I have to give you the backstory for two seconds. They're a couple, they're both sort of working class, very large. He's very large. She's very large. Um, and they've just had a kid and she was gonna be a stay at home mom, which is what she wanted to do. And he was a master electrician, but then he had an accident right after they had the kid and he was having a workman's comp, you know, trial. And so he wasn't bringing in any money at that point. So he had to be a stay at home dad and she had to go and work, which was not making her happy and not making him happy because he didn't really know what to do with the kid and she didn't really wanna go and work, but that's just the way it was. And that's what happened. So. Um, there's a long story to this, but the short story is he's, she's coming home one day and he's trying to do the diapers and he's doing it in a way that she thinks is like funny, right? And not particularly effective. And she says, jokingly, she thinks, oh, that's a stupid way to do the diapers. And he goes off and slugs her, okay? So I said, what did you wanna have happen? And she said, all I wanted was for him to acknowledge me and let me help him and appreciate that I could really do something and he didn't really know how to do it. And like, just let me help him instead of like going after me like that. And I said, could you do that? I said to him, can you do that? You never have to do it again. And he says, of course. And he plays it out to a 10, like exactly the way she wants. Then I said, feel that in the body that there is nothing, you know, that all you want to do is help. And he doesn't accept your help. And it makes you crazy because you know you know how to do it better. And I said, and, and it's really a charge for you, that theme. And she goes into her body. I don't remember the sensation she found because this is like 25 years ago. 
Um, but whatever sensation she found, she found a sensation. And then I said, all right, now be the sensation. And she says, oh my God, I know what's happening. I'm this seven-year-old girl and I'm there with my mother. And she's trying to do the drapes and she's not doing a very good job with it. And I see a better way to do it. And I say, mommy, let me help you. I see a better way to do it. And mommy then says, go out, go out and play with your friends. She and was dismissed. What? She was dismissed. <laughs> and she runs up. She says, I don't want to go play with my silly friends. She's like crying at this point. And she runs up to her bedroom and no one comes to look for her. And she's crying and crying and crying, saying, I just wanted to help my mommy. I knew how to do it. And she wouldn't let me do it anymore. All right. So I say to him, could you stand in for the mother? What did you want? And she says, all I wanted was for her to say, oh, of course you can help me, sweetheart. Thank you so much. You are such a bright little girl. He does that and she breaks down in tears and like the sensations all go away. All right, she's happy at that point. Let me tell you his story, okay? His story is she walks in and under her breath says, that's a stupid way to do this. And he, goes and he heard stupid, and he heard stupid. And he heard stupid, right. All right, so this is not gonna be complicated as you can imagine. So he goes off and slugs her. And he, she says, she's, he, I say, well, what did you want? And he said, all I wanted was some acknowledgement. It was clear I didn't know how to do this very well. And, you know, I would have been happy to have her help, but like at least like acknowledge that I'm doing my best and I'm trying. And she says, I of course can do that. And she does that and he's really appreciative. Um, she, you know, he's really appreciative. And I say, okay, forget her. Feel that sensation of someone calling you stupid in your body. He does, and he starts to cry. He says, I know exactly what's going on. I'm about nine years old and my father's a workman. And I have this big shovel and I'm trying to shovel some gravel for him. And I look over hoping he's gonna be proud of me. And I overhear him say to a friend, whisper, look at my stupid kid, he doesn't even know how to shovel. I remember him saying that, I'm getting goosebumps now. And all I wanted was that. And then he breaks down crying and his wife looks at me because she tells me later they've been married for 15 years. They got married very young. They just had this kid. I think it was 15 years, maybe not. Um, maybe it must not have been 15 years because I can see them and they were, well, maybe, maybe they got married at 18 and this was like in their early thirties. Anyway, so I say, um, she's, she says later, he starts bawling and bawling. She says later, I've never seen this man cry. And I go and I say, can you stand in for the father? And she says, of course. And I ask what he wants. And he says, all I wanted was my father to say, I can see you're having trouble, but you're trying so hard. And, you know, I so appreciate you and I'm happy to show you how to do this. And she says, of course I can do that. And she does it. And then he really breaks down crying and they're hugging each other. And she's looking at me like. You're a miracle worker. Well, that's how you heal mutual grudges. And if you know how to heal mutual grudges and you know how to help people understand each other from the inside out, you can go a long way in couples therapy. And That is a beautiful thought. story, Andy. I just absolutely love that. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Tell us about your healing circles and your destination healing retreats and the best ways for people to connect with you and the Life-Centered Therapy Institute. Healing circles... I run healing circles and then we do the work in a group, which is really lovely. And all I do is um, I have everybody check in, like they're all part of a body, but there's cells in a body and everybody checks in and then various things can happen. I start muscle testing the circle 
right? Because the circle is a living being and I'll find out, do they just all have to drop into something? Do we have to find a common theme? Do we have to find a common pattern? Does one person work and then somebody knows what they need and then that person works and then some, and I'll just, so there's all kinds of different ways it can go and we all work together and it's like all of us going on a journey together of healing and supporting each other. Now, do you schedule these healing circles? I mean, people go online and decide to join your healing circle. Is that how it oh, works? Yeah. Okay. And then your destination healing retreats, are you starting those off, restarting them after COVID? Uh, we probably will. We haven't set a date yet, but we would go away every year on a retreat and we would just do two healing circles every day which gets really lovely and intense and it just builds and builds and builds. And we do them either for four days or we do them for a week. And, um, you know, so it's either seven sessions or 11 sessions and we all live together and eat together. I'm sure people become fast friends from these experiences. Become very fast friends and it becomes yeah. very deep and intimate and that's that. And if they want to get in touch with us, all they have to do is go to lifecenteredtherapy.com if they want to reach me, it's very simple. They just do A as an Andy Han, A Han at Life Center Therapy. H-A-H-N, everyone. H-A-H-N. And uh, if they want to learn about our trainings, because we do online training, it's go, this is longer, go.readyforamiracle.net backslash free training. Say it again so people are writing it down. Go.readyforamiracle.net. Go dot net backslash free dash training and okay. then they can find about our trainings but they can see that on our website but we train people online now and it's really joyful because it I must can, be wonderful you, i mean you're helping so many people it's just wonderful andy why should people want to heal in this lifetime while they're here what would you like to tell them about that why is it important I guess they have to make up their minds if they want to be free or they want to live a life of uh, being like on automatic. And, and we'll, yeah, go that's ahead. Free will. That's free will. Free will is you want to be free, which means you have to face the things that you haven't wanted to face, but then they don't run your life anymore. Or you're going to let them run your life and not necessarily be aware of it, but eventually they'll show up because you'll, something will happen to you or you'll get they'll play out in symptoms or whatever. And eventually life keeps knocking and keeps saying, I'm here and you keep running away and they keep saying, I'm bigger than you are and I'm not going any place and I'm gonna help you because I'll never leave you. And he's like, I wish you would leave me, but it's the one thing that says, you'll never be alone. I'll never abandon you. And I'll always help you heal, even if you don't like what you're seeing because in order to heal and grow, you have to face the things that you're most afraid to experience. And no, that's free will. I think free will is simply, you go kicking and screaming, or do you say, what the heck, I'll smile and I'll face it. That's it. I think it's wonderful and beautiful and so true. And Andy, what is your tip on finding joy in life? Well, I have two tips. The first one is you have to get, let go of the things that are in the way of joy, right? And that's everything we talked about today. Whenever there's something you're reactive to, you won't have joy, right? So you have to feel in the body, the reactivity and let it share. Then I would say two, then there's one other thing. I'll say one small thing, which is some people have trauma around joy because it's been traumatized. Then you have to do this, but start with 
what are you afraid of if you experience joy? And what you'll usually find is some kind of sexual abuse. And that will literally be about joy and pleasure because some people have charge and pleasure and joy. But then I'll tell you what I think the best way to do it is. Go under, go to a quiet spot that you really love and uh, ask like the deepest part of you, like your gut, what you know is true for you. What's true for you? Like if you're really living your truth, what's true for you? And then bring your attention up a little bit to the center of your chest. And there's a soft voice there if you listen. It's not what you wanna do. It's what your deep heart says is, I'm gonna have a message for you. And you listen and say, if I, given that what I know is true for me, what do I really desire and not sort of superficially desire, but what would really give me a sense of aliveness and joy and like every, every moment I'd be saying yes. And then whatever it says, go for it even, and then use your head, which is the last place to go, your head, which doesn't know anything about what's true for you or what your joy is, but it may be able to help you make it happen. And so it's, everything is reversed. The head thinks it knows everything. It knows nothing except for the fact that once you know what's true for you and what you truly, truly desire, what you long for, you can say, maybe I can help. Maybe I can be discerning and help make it happen. That's my wisdom. You know what, everyone, you're listening and you're watching two people who know what joy is because what Andy does is his mission and has given him tremendous joy. And what I'm doing through this podcast is my mission and is giving me tremendous joy. So I would say that we are living what you just said about, about finding that peace that really makes you happy. And Andy, I know from personal experience that truly from my own personal experience that healing transforms a person's inner world and shifts that person's reality in many positive ways. I really applaud you and your Life Center Therapy Institute for the significant healing transformations you are making in people's lives as you actively pursue your mission to help end all suffering. Bravo, brother. (laughs) And I'm already looking forward to bringing you back on this podcast to introduce the Grief and Rebirth podcast audience to your upcoming book titled One Hour Miracle. Thank you from my heart for this dynamic, impactful, important healing interview. And here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on ireneweinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.